was watching this documentary a couple weeks ago on the Discovery Channel, and it was about the place that if you go to the Holy Land, and I actually haven't been there yet, but um, what's true about the Holy Land is that they've that people have sort of said, like, this is where this happened. And then usually a church is built on top of that. And one of those churches was built upon where they think that Jesus was, was buried. And this documentary was on this church and the fact that it's, it's actually, like, falling apart. And so the documentary was on how uh, they were going to go in and basically stabilize this, this building, this you know, ancient site that is super important to a lot of Christians. And uh, as they were telling the story of this church and this place where they believe that, that Jesus was buried and resurrected, which I don't know for sure if that is where it was, um, they, they told some stories about this site. And it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, and one thing stuck out to me. First, Six different Christian denominations hold the right to this, this site. They sort of share this religious site. You have the Greek Orthodox, uh, the Armenian Apostolic, Roman Catholic, Coptic, Ethiopian, and Syriac Orthodox churches. Six different sort of Christian denominations share this holy site. And the sad reality is there's all sorts of fighting and arguments that happen between these six different Christian groups very often. Uh, one day in the summer of 2002, a monk moved his chair eight inches to find shade on the site. This was interpreted by one of the other uh, groups as a hostile act and a violation of boundaries that they have set up. And a fight broke out. 11 people were hospitalized. This is how uh, divided this sacred site is amongst these Christians. But there's a, 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 an even crazier story about this building, and that is in the early 1800s, a man placed a ladder on a ledge and uh, that ladder has never been moved because the six groups of Christians can't agree on moving it. So here's a, here's a picture of this church. This is the entrance to the church. And if you look up toward the top, you can see a ladder up there. Alex, if you want to go to the next picture. There it is. And there's, there's one more. That ladder has been an instrument for all sorts of division and fighting within groups of Christians. That a ladder cannot be moved and has not been moved for over 200 years because a group of Christians just can't all agree on moving it. And fights and fistfights break out in relation to it. I found this this story just completely mesmerizing. Because for me, it's this realization that even we as Christians who are called to unity together often fight 
over just meaningless things. It's a ladder. It's a ladder. It's a guy who wants to move eight inches to go sit in some shade. And I think it reveals something that is, that is at war against the human heart. And that is a, a war of division, of opposition, even toward one another. I want to read for you Nehemiah chapter 2. If, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we're going through the book of Nehemiah. And what we've seen so far is Nehemiah has heard this report about Jerusalem. Most of the Jewish people have experienced exile outside of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah gets a report that the city's been destroyed, the wall's been destroyed. You know, things are just tattered. And God gives him this, this sort of vision for going and rebuilding the wall, but also rebuilding this, these broken people. And we, we find out, like, the first few weeks, just what Nehemiah does initially upon hearing this report. He doesn't run into action. He doesn't avoid the problem. Uh, in fact, when he hears the report, he steps back, he, he, he prays, he laments, he weeps, and he fasts for, for days. Just to seek God's presence in the midst of this disastrous report. And then last week we talked about his first move. So through, through prayer and fasting, he's, he's brought to awareness of the sin of the people. And this, his sin. And the fact that a lot of this calamity, if not all of it, has, is, has been because of the people's continued sin and rebellion against God in an unwillingness to obey. And so Nehemiah repents. And for us, what we've looked at is we've looked at how we, you know, like problems in our lives, it's easy to sort of just jump to, to action or some of us just ignore problems and that none of those, like either one of those things isn't always the best move, but maybe what we need to do is just press pause and seek the presence of God. Maybe we need to spend some time fasting. Maybe we need to spend some time really praying before we jump into action. And then, you know, we see last week we talked about we've got to be able to recognize like where we might be at fault for some of the problems going on in our life. And like where is sin involved? And when you boil down a lot of the problems in, in the world, it's almost all rooted in sin. Either our sin or the sin of other people. And this, this call to live a repentant life is so necessary in following God. And the fact that we can live a repentant life is just a gift in of itself. Like, God just says, you know, I've sent my son to, to forgive you and love you, and you can come back to him, regardless of how far you may find yourself. So now, we see now this first sort of step into action on the wall itself. And it says this, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Ataraxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing, this can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king, live, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? 
Then the king said to me, what is it you want? And this is where we see like all the preparation leading up until this point, the preparation through prayer, through fasting, through reflection, like the pursuit of God, like it's all gonna, like all that preparation, I think is for this moment because here he's, he's, he's in essence a slave. This king has the power to, to do whatever he wants to Nehemiah. Certainly at the very least, he can just say, no, you're not going back home. This is foolish. I like having you here. At the very worst, he could kill him. Just like, this is annoying. Off with his head. I'll find someone else to do it. And I think that's why Nehemiah, like, it says he's afraid. And, you know, like, there's going to be moments in our lives. Like, if you follow Jesus long enough, there's going to be these moments where you're going to either, like, say yes and speak up. Or, or choose to live through, like, obedience and action, or say no. And the fear is probably not that by speaking up and saying, I'm a Christian, or being obedient, or following Jesus, it's probably not going to be met with death in this life, but it might be met with ridicule. You might be ridiculed, you might get scoffed at, you might be made fun of. And Nehemiah, just like, you know, we find ourselves in these situations every day, like, like often where we're going to go, am I willing to step from like fear to faith for what I believe in and for what I know I need to do or I know I need to say, regardless of the response. And I think all the spiritual prep work has led to this moment where he has the courage to do what he knows is right and to say what he knows he needs to say. It's, it's interesting, though, because verse 4, the king said to me, what is it you want? And it goes, then I prayed to God of heaven. So it's like, he's still, like right up until that moment, he's going to God, which I think is so powerful. Like God is in this with him, completely. And even, like right, right before he's to answer, he even does like a quick prayer. God, give me strength. We don't, I mean give me the words, like I want to do your will. And we see God's like right there with him and blesses him and gives him what he needs. It says, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if, you are, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Tran-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. I mean, this is the Wild West. Like, just getting there is a risk. Not to mention when you get there, it's sort of an apocalyptic sort of probably uh, landscape. So Nehemiah is like, can I get some protection? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that it will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. I need materials too. I need a place where I can, you know, sleep. This is going to take a while. And because of the gracious hand of, and because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted me my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. 
You know, as I reflected on this passage this last week, I just, we talked about this kind of with the steel miracle. You know, we look at circumstances in life and situations, like we were looking at that steel and we just go, you know, Amazon is this huge company. Billions of dollars, power, like they're, they're eating up all the steel. Like there's no way that, like they have the power. And, and they have the money, and they're probably at the top of the list when it comes to materials because they're going to spend the most. And we talked about that, this as a church when, you know, here's this, this compared to Amazon, where it's just this little group of people and, you know, existing in, in a small suburb of Minneapolis that uh, uh, isn't even a blink on the radar, you know, of compared to Amazon. And yet we go, yeah, but... God's on our, not that God is necessarily on the side of Amazon, but he's certainly on our side. He's certainly on our side, and he's certainly bigger than Amazon. But often, I think it's easy for us to kind of like question the bigness of God. Like, oh yeah, I want to, I know I'm supposed to say that, but is he really like, Bigger than some of the biggest organizations or the most powerful people in the world or the most the richest people in the world. And yet uh, what we see here is when we pay attention to God's voice and he invites us into what may even seem like the impossible. When we're willing to say yes and live, like, by faith that he's going to provide and is big enough. Like, he does. He can. I mean, Nehemiah, like, God just pours his grace and blessing into the, 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 the will that, uh, that he has for Nehemiah. And because of Nehemiah's obedience, God's just like, I'm going to give you what you need. So you need an army to protect you? done. You need like lumber and timber? Done. You need other materials? Done. And I, you know, sometimes we're like, why isn't God giving me what I need? Like, because sometimes we've honestly got to look and go, maybe this is like my initiative, not God's. But I can tell you when we're in like the, like we're committed to the will of God and being obedient to his calling in our life, he's going to give you everything you need. He will. But it's the question of are we willing to sort of risk and, and live by faith to say yes to God, particularly when he's asking us to give a lot. To, to, to risk a lot. And if you haven't felt called to risk for the kingdom of God lately, I would just ask, I'd ask you, like, are you living a self-reliant life on yourself? Are you able to provide prim primarily for yourself, but also are you living kind of like on, on the path that, that you want? Like, at the end of the day, if I'm honest, I'm not sure I've invited God into this.
when you're following Jesus, like at, at times, there's going to be things he calls of us to do, to give, to say, to change, that just is upside down because the kingdom of God is upside down from the world. But the promise is if you're willing to risk it for him, he's not going to give in. He's not going to give up. He's not going to not provide for you. Some of the greatest moments in my life as a Christian were some of the hardest to get to because of fear. I know, like, decisions on, for me personally, um, becoming a pastor, uh, adopting. Uh, Even I was actually being interviewed this last week about the adoption goal that we had. That was, you know, terrifying because it's like, what if we put out a number and we don't meet it? But I look at my life and I go, those are some of uh, the most amazing ways I've seen God work. I'd say, too, giving. When I became a pastor, I was like, I don't need to give. Why? I'm giving like a lot to the church. Why would I tithe money back to the church? It's paying me. Why would I give? And then I was like, maybe I should. And I had a buddy who was like, no, you, like, if you're not doing it, you're not really leading by example. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Then I was like, wow, that's going to be like a decent amount of money. And I don't really like that feeling. But I can tell you story after story where my wife and I have chosen to give financially and God's just done crazy cool stuff. And I look at those things, those moments that were really hard to get to are some of the most beautiful moments of my life. But it, it, it's required risk to say yes to God, to trust that I'm going to be okay. He's going to protect me. If I go in and I become a pastor and everything falls apart and I'm really bad at it, like, okay, I'm just going to trust that I'll get another job and I'll be all right. You know, I'm not going to end up like dead or on the street, you know, like God's going to provide for me. If we adopt, like, okay, God, like I'm going to trust that you're going to help us financially. Like that money is going to appear somewhere. And, you know, like, God, you're going to meet and give us what we need when we're having hard conversations with our kids throughout their lives about that. Or if we run into challenges, like, you're going to give us what we need. Or if I cut this check every month, like, God, you're going to provide for our family. We're going to have enough. We're going to be good. But when we leave space for God, a big God, to fill in, he shows up. The question is like, do, are we leaving space? And Nehemiah's, you know, he's got a big space, a big needs, but he's prepared for this. He knows God's with him and he just asks for it. And the king goes, yeah, God fills in the space. He fills in the needs he provides. And I'd say the first thing I just want to challenge you to do is to really question, like, as a, as a follower of Jesus and as a family, like, how much space, honestly, are we making for God? How much, you know, like, are we making 
uh, are we opening ourselves to a big space for a big God? Or have we just sort of created like small little spaces that we just kind of conveniently ask God into? And I just say, okay, you can live that life. And I don't think like you live that life, you're going to hell. I don't think that's, I would never say that. But I would say you're going to miss out. You might miss out on some really cool stories. Really cool moments and blessings and just powerful like that is God. You know, we could have with the steel just gone, yep, Amazon wins because they're bigger. They're, and you know. But like we were like, let's, we're fasting. Let's ask God. Why not? Let's make room for a big God. And if he says no, it's not the end of the world. Like, but what if he says yes? He says yes. And then last week we get this moment where it's just like, wow, awesome, moving, powerful. That's the life that God is inviting us into. It's the adventure that God is inviting us to live when we walk with him, we listen to his, fo- his voice, and we are willing to step into action. All right, let's move on. Verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officer heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So here we're the second part to this sermon. Expect opposition. Even if God, you know, I think it's easy to think God called me into this, it should just work out. Because it's God. It should just be easy. And it should just be a straight path. I think for whatever reason, those are the expectations we often have with God. I do. But often it's not a straight path. It's like windy and ups and downs. So don't expect that it's going to be easy that it's going to be safe, that it's going to be quick when you say yes to the will of God. Expect pushback. It might take more time. It might be difficult. And expect naysayers. And this is what we see. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And I think this is actually a really cool verse for this reason. Nehemiah then goes, he's starting to face opposition, but he keeps his mouth shut. And I think this is another uh, demonstration of the wisdom of Nehemiah. It is so easy to sort of just like blabber and just, I mean, even Nehemiah could have just been like, God said this, look at how it's working out, like Get in, get in line. And yet, he, he like, he's slow to speak. And I think this is, this is worth noticing. He is slow to speak. As if to be like, I want to make sure I have the right words in the midst of opposition. It goes on to say in verse 13, By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down in its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. 
Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing their work. And I'm going to talk more about this next week, um, the preparation piece, but I, I think it's worth noting the silence piece. Then I said to him, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. So after a few days, he does finally speak up. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Most people are in. This is awesome. I love this. Let's go. But, of course, there's always an inevitable but, verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah, has been called by God. God has, has, there's a pain in his heart. There's a problem and he wants to be part of a solution. And he's honored God through all of it to take steps that are in line with God's plan. He's spoken up when he needs to speak up. He's been, he ha, he's been quiet when he, when he knows he should be. He's ultimately doing what God wants him to do but he's and we're going to see this through this series it's going to get serious quick there's people speaking against him there's opposition there's ridicule there's pride and power at play and i go back to that I go back to that ladder, and I just go, how can a group of Christians not agree on a ladder and moving a ladder? And the opposition at play within these six groups of Christians, the pride that must just live there to say, no, has to be this way, or the anger and sin that lives there to where they can end up in fistfights over moving a chair eight inches into the shade. And I wonder if a practice in humility is it would in part is just a willingness to maybe not talk, <laughs> maybe just listen. Maybe for a moment, like, gather our thoughts, and instead of jumping to uh, conclusion or action or to, to words, to jump to prayer and reflection. To be quick, not to speak, but to listen, to be still. And then in the right time, respond. I am really bad at this. I am a talker. I'm a verbal processor. And 
I often just go with my mouth. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've blabbered and then an hour later or whatever it may be, I look back and I go, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Or um, I get so worked up about an injustice or something I think is unfair or just drama and I just am quick to, to talk to, to go and, and confront, and yet I do so with the wrong heart, whether it's justification, because that's often what happens. Like there's this feeling of, I need to justify and protect myself, or a feeling of, I'm right, you're wrong, and I've got to prove that I'm right. Or just uh, uh, we, we draw conclusions in our head immediately with not without all the information and we just sort of act and move and talk and then we get the whole story I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me you get the whole story and you're like oh I don't like people who are late and when you're late uh, I've had to learn through some hard moments where I start to reprimand a person who's late and then they're like well just like they tell the whole story. And something le like legitimately kept them from being there. And the practice that I've tried to implement in my life is to give positive assumption. Because like whatever it is, the sinful nature in me always goes to like just like the anger or that 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 person uh, you know is wrong or whatever it is. And yet often if I just step back, I'm slow to speak, I pause to pray, I give positive assumption, it almost always works out more Christ-like, better, and it's more Christ-like. And I go, that's what's happening with the latter. It's just people arguing about stuff that doesn't matter. But now it's just, you know, and this is what sin can do. It can start with the latter, and then it grows into a much bigger thing. That for 200 years, they can't agree to move the thing. And it's like, okay, expect opposition, even in amongst ourselves. But, like, let's try to, to learn to respond differently. Like, not let grudges get in the way. You know, people's ability to hold a grudge against another person for years is, you know, it's It's sad. I mean, this is, the latter is just a sad story of like the human condition and our ability to hold a grudge for 200 years over something that at the end of the day, who gives a rip about it? I mean, God doesn't. What if that group of people came together and was like, we're going to make this into a place of real worship? Like, what if the, the moment of coming together, I mean, that would be more powerful than fighting over anything to come together in unity. I think Nehemiah, again, gives us just an awesome example of a practical way we can live as Christians, and it can result in just really good things, and I think Christ-likeness. And this, and that is, okay, one, I'm, an, I'm willing to make a big space for a big God. I'm going to be obedient to him, and, and I just trust he's going to provide. The second is, in the midst of opposition, 
I'm just, I'm willing to maybe, uh, I'm, I'm willing to be quick to listen and slow to speak. All the while, pressing into the, the presence of God and praying. So I think the solution to so many particularly relational conflicts that we experience in our life would be if we for a split second just prayed. I know like, you know, my wife and I, we have uh, an amazing Christian pastor who counsels us in our marriage. And I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll be meeting with him and he'll talk. Well, I'll be like, yeah, we got in a fight. It's like this and that. I was like, I was right and she's wrong and da da da. And he's like, okay, before you responded, Aaron, like, did you ever like, did you take a second just to invite Jesus in? Like, where is Jesus in this? And I'm, I'm like, no, because I was right. And it's like this, the simplest practice is like, if I were just to, in, for a second, not talk, keep my mouth shut, and just invite Jesus in, like, it can make all the difference. Like, these little moments. And I'm just like, let's, what if we implemented that in our life? I think it would, it would be, uh, it would be powerful in a lot of ways. And transform us in a lot of ways. And I think the problems, we would interact with our problems and our relational problems. I mean, all the problems, just differently. I think they would, I think they would play out differently. Because at the end of the day, the amazing news is like, God uh, is, is there with us in our struggles and our problems, our triumphs and our failures. And he's, he's worth relying on. So, do I make a big space for a big God in my life? And when it comes to the inevitable, inevitable pushback to following Jesus and the ridicule, how do I respond to that in my life? How do I interact with that in my life? And maybe one practical step I could take this week is just to invite Jesus in before I say anything. He'll be life-changing. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're good. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that um, there's so much that we just are thankful for. And I just love Nehemiah and how he gives us practical ways to, to live and Inevitably, God, um, when we say yes to you, it will offend people. Uh, people won't agree with what we're doing or how we live. There will be pushback, division. But Lord, I just I pray that you would give us thick skin with tender hearts. that we would learn to respond well and loving. Ultimately, like you, Jesus. I pray that we would be slow to speak, and I pray, God, that you remind us to invite you, Jesus, in to those moments before we react and how that might make all the difference. So, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your sacrifice. Thanks that we get to live this, like, this life with you and for you so call us into bigger things, God, always. Because we want to see you, a big God, work in Jesus' name.
Amen. You guys can stand. We're going to sing a couple songs.